0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to season three of Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is Eudaimonia Pod. In this episode titled "Solitude with Rilke and Merton," I'm joined by philosopher Ian Marcus Corbin, who currently holds a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School, where he co-directs the Human Network Initiative. Anne and I will be chatting about the poet Rainer Maria Rilke and the spiritual writer Thomas Merton on the value of solitude in an age of distraction and disinformation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really happy to be joined by Ian Marcus Corbin this afternoon. Ian got his PhD in philosophy from Boston College, and he is now a postdoc at the Harvard Medical School, where he works on the Human Network Initiative. And he's also writing a book on solitude. And today we're going to be talking about Rilke and Merton on solitude. Welcome to the podcast, Ian.
1: Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: When I reached out to you to come on the podcast, which I've been wanting to do for a while, you were like, hey, let's talk about Rilke. So the first question is is going to be, who is Rilke? Who is or Rilke? For our listeners who don't know. And then why Rilke? Why, why did you want to talk about Rilke?
1: Okay, so Rilke um, is a, a German language poet. I think he's most often referred to as being Austrian. Um, he was born in Prague which was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in right, right. 1875. Um, born into, uh, his father, I believe, was in the military. His mother was a pious Catholic. Um, he ended up walking away from both of those things um, and became quite a well-traveled, um, well-regarded poet. Um, he spent time as Auguste Rodin's personal secretary, um, he met Tolstoy in Russia. Uh, he had an affair with Lou Salomé. Um, so, right, you know, as the fin de siècle is kind of peaking, he is is very much a part of this uh, kind of transnational European community of of literature. Um, he dies at fifty one, unfortunately, in um, in Switzerland.
0: Um, How does he die?
1: Uh, it was a complication from some illness it was nothing mm-hmm. nothing very exciting um, and in let's see nineteen o three he got uh, a letter from a young man who was also training to be a soldier, as Rilke had initially done um, and had discovered that this famous poet uh, had studied at the same academy as he as he was studying and wrote to him uh, to see. Uh, whether he, this young man, last name Kappus, uh, should also become a poet. So he sent him uh, some of his verse and asked for advice. And then a five-year correspondence began where Rilke just writes these incredibly deep, florid, lyrical, um, philosophically profound letters to him about about being an artist and living in the world and, and really, really everything. Um, so... It's an excellent little text. It's about just seventy pages long, I would say.
2: It's sure. Letters to a Young Poet. Letters
1: to a Young Poet is the uh, is the the collection of of Rilke's uh, ten letters that he wrote to to Kappas, um who and then Kappas subsequently published them. Um, and I just think they're they're very wise. Um, and when when we started corresponding, you and I, I had just read through them for the first time and was was sort of absorbing the shock of it. And then also, I mean, it was by, by this time we were right in the heart of of our lockdown, and you know, I think, like a lot of people, my world had shrunk pretty quickly, and I was sort of um, looking, you know, I was I was alternating between um, staring at my my LED screens and having to look at myself and my family up close. Um, so so I found it super resonant, and I thought that the timing might be might be right.
0: Yeah. Have you ever read, um, apparently he was a prolific letter writer, but there's also a collection called the dark interval letters on loss, grief and transformation. Mm-mm. These are exceptional. Are they good? Uh, yeah, they're really good. Did
1: you like, did you like letters to a young poet?
0: I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm a huge Rilke fan. Okay. Um, I fell in love with Rilke when I was 18. It was a time when I was also trying to learn German. So it, it was good, it was fortuitous. But yeah, I, I, I'm a huge Rilke fan.
1: Okay, so you were sending me these, these you know, properly critical questions about his ethics and whether he's going to lead us into wickedness. And I wasn't sure.
0: I'm properly critical of everything.
1: Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so that's Rilke. Yeah. Let's talk about the letters. Yeah. Obviously um, his main advice to this young poet is to go in and explore his inner life, mm-hmm. right? The thing that he's most concerned with is to get this young poet to see that the things that you would do for like practical advice, you know, you can't do, right? You can't look to other people. You can't um, get counsel from experts. Mm-hmm. It's not about... Like you have to go deep inside of yourself, and your answers will be there. Yeah. So yeah. what are you, what are we supposed to make of that?
1: I mean, it's it's funny because it it begins as I mean, it's sort of practical advice, but it turns out that uh, this is just what Rilke thinks reality is like and what human life ought to be like. Um, there's a a kind of tacit anthropology in there. There's some kind of like kind of squishy mystical metaphysics in there um and you know what it what begins as as a you know a little a little bit of advice for a young man i think turns into this big reflection on how to be human in the world and uh you know how to live well
0: well what does rilke have to say about what the human is and how to be a human
1: so i mean he's he's writing um and I should point out, he's remarkably young when he's writing these things. He has no no business being as wise and reflective as he is um, because he's, he's just, he's not even 30 yet when he starts this correspondence. Um, so, but, but he's working at the tail end of this period when, um, and we can say especially in Germany, but all over Europe, um, writers and intellectuals and philosophers, are dealing with what they they experience as a kind of set of, of breaks. Um, so the break between self and nature, the break between um, our emotions and our reason, the break between human beings, um, and you know there's lots of attempts to try to try to heal those breaks. And I th- I think Rilke really participates in that because what he wants is he wants you to be able to see your inner life and your outer life both as being really very much in tune and and analogous to um the lifespan of a of an apple tree or a bird or the earth itself right like he sees this this deep spiritual sort of tapestry that just comprehends everything so really all he thinks i mean as far as i can understand is that we just need to shut up and slow down and be patient and let ourselves kind of be carried along and just be part of this, this tapestry.
0: Is that like a religious commitment?
1: Yeah, I mean, he leaves creedal Christianity behind pretty early on. Um, He keeps talking about God. um, And and he, it's not entirely clear what he means by it. Um, I don't, I think he's potentially open to God being a real You know agent a real existent and and person whom you might hear from or interact with but he certainly doesn't have anything kind of dogmatically nailed down um so is it religious like kind of it certainly has like you know there's stuff you're trying to get in touch with that is not just um you know matter um there is uh, a way of life that he thinks you should adopt in order to maximize your communion with that, that thing, that force, whatever that is. Um, so that, I mean, it's, it starts to verge towards, um, towards something like religion, I think.
2: Well, what is
0: the way of life that he wants you to adopt?
1: I mean, solitude's a big part of it. Um, patience is, and, and careful attention. Um, he says on multiple occasions in, in these letters that you should trust the world, you should trust life, which is nuts. Um, if he has walked away from belief in an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God, then you know it might make more sense in a certain way, or it might make more immediate sense in a certain way to adopt a posture like Nietzsche or Camus, um, to think that... You know human desire uh at a deep level uh is not compatible with this world as it is or or it's 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 certainly at, at odds at times um and that we need to kind of triumph over it right we need to rebel against it rilke thinks that if we could just slow down and look closer that we would see that we're not actually at odds with the world as it is. That actually, like, it's it's very much suited to us. We fit in it very well. It's just that we have these bad habits that obscure this reality from us.
0: So is he a sort of contemplative realist where the idea, it's sort of, like, Murdochian in a way. I mean, that's, an, that's a totally anachronistic way of putting it, but whatever. Where the idea is, like, look, if we would just pay attention to the world, which she thinks takes virtue. Like actually paying attention to the world is incredibly hard for us. One, because she thinks we're so self-deceived and two, because she thinks to actually pay attention does take certain habits of thought and feeling and heart. And, but she thinks that the more you can pay attention to the world, the more you can be good and, and live well and be happy. Is that, is that. Kind of in the waters that Rilke is swimming in.
1: I think so. Um, yeah, I don't know if to be good is sort of like um, it's certainly not primary in his vocabulary. Um, what, what would he? What would he say that we're striving for?
0: To flourish.
1: I, I mean, yeah, something like that. I mean, he just doesn't tend to talk in moral language. Um, he.
0: Well, I don't think good is so moral myself, but you know, it's a good, it's a good hamburger. It's a good human bang, whatever.
1: (laughs) Okay. So actually at at the the end, towards the end of letter nine, nine out of the 10, he says, all emotions are pure, which gather you and lift you up. That emotion is impure, which seizes only one side of your being. And so distorts you. I think there's room to come at it from an Aristotelian angle and think that he's just trying to understand the whole human person and how that whole person can flourish. And it's not by any means just that, like, um, you know, you follow whatever urge comes along and and, you know, make dumbass decisions because a temporary feeling f- is, has flitted through. Um, he thinks that you can kind of measure those, those feelings based on whether it seems like they are causing you to live fully, live richly.
0: Yeah. So earlier you talked about how he's trying to overcome various breaks. Um, But I'm not really sure what you mean by breaks. Do you mean just sort of like alienation? I guess I'm wondering how solitude helps us be less alienated, and whether or not he ever puts it in the the pretty familiar, I mean, the language of alienation, I think would have been familiar enough to him.
1: So how does solitude help to, to heal those alienations?
0: Yeah, to make us less alienated, right? The sorts of alienation that Marx is worried about, that Kierkegaard's worried about, arguably Tolstoy is worried about. Yeah,
1: I mean, certainly like alienation from the material world or from the from nature, that's an easy one to see. Um, he thinks that, uh, I mean, one of his first pieces of advice to Kappas is um, to spend time with nature, to take nature very seriously, to watch nature. Um and he basically thinks that our growth, both physical and most especially kind of interior, emotional growth, just works on a on an analogous kind of calendar. Like it has seasons. You just have to be patient. Things kind of happen as they will, and you you just need to kind of almost surrender to them. There's something um, almost Marian about uh, about some of his urges. You just sort of be it done to me according to thy not word in this case but uh but I, I think that for him like there is no actual distance between us and nature there's just a perceived distance that we need to look past i don't know if that that doesn't necessarily answer your question does it
2: well
0: i mean it invites more questions that's for sure but i don't know how much you know rilke not a philosopher right and i don't you know, he's a poet. He's a genius poet, in yeah. my opinion. Um, and so, I don't. I don't need to make him into a philosopher. I just. Um, I don't know. I just am a philosopher. So, <laughs> so those are the kinds of questions I'm going to have.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. I mean, one thing that I think is really obvious about these letters is that Rilke sees some connection. I'm not sure that he ever makes it explicit, um, but other philosophers have. And in particular, I'm thinking of Joseph Pieper. There there does seem to be a very strong connection in Rilke between solitude and contemplation and receptivity. Yeah. Right. And when we think of the artist, right, and... I mean, to be honest, I think this goes all the way back to Plato. It's a receptive mm-hmm. mode of being, yeah, yeah.
2: Right?
0: right? And this is something that I think is extremely important. I think it's been lost. I think it's been lost to almost all of contemporary philosophy. If you start talking to like... People in my tribe, analytic philosophers, about receptivity—they mm. just think you're talking about Kant's theory of perception, and they like, have no other context for thinking about it.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> because it's all about autonomy and self-determination, mm. and that's it—that's the only model. I once was um, having this conversation with Christine Korsgaard, um, who I think is the like exemplar <laughs> of this this way of thinking,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know, she thinks that human agency is all about self-constitution. And so I was like, hey, so here's a story. Paul McCartney um, woke up one morning and the entire like song yesterday was just in his head. And he just went and wrote it down, but it was like transcribing something. And, And so I said, well, on your theory, that doesn't seem like an intentional action. And she was like yes it's not and i was like mm, that seems like strike against your theory <laughs> like, like, like you know that it just completely blocks out receptivity
2: yeah because
0: it seems like oh that's a lot of art i mean i think it's a lot of morality too i think love itself has deeply receptive components um do you think there's any of this like going on you know that there's this connection between solitude and silence as being the space where you can be receptive to what we might just call inspiration or insight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, I love what I, I've been out of uh, analytic philosophy departments for over a decade now, so I forget exactly what it's like. Um, <laughs> but let's um, you know, save
0: that for a private. We'll,
1: conversation. we'll save. We'll save it. But um. Our mutual friend Phil Klei sent me a wonderful essay by Annette Beyer um, where she argues um, that modern philosophy and like modern liberal thought and modern moral thought has been deeply shaped by the fact that the vast majority of the people who founded it were single adult men (laughs) Yeah, and had no children in their lives, had no wives following them around um and could understand human relations and human life as you know just sort of the interaction of fully formed autonomous uh creatures yeah. and they're not dependent on one another um who had no one dependent on them um, my impression is that first of all is just correct and that um there are large parts of our political thought um and like you're saying you know our our moral mainstream moral thought um that does tend to understand human agency like that um and and as a result I, i mean i think rilke to me reads kind of classically feminine in a lot of ways right because those virtues of receptivity those virtues of kind of humble bearing with reality of patience um i mean you know in Homer, those are also feminine virtues, but I think they get like extra cordoned off and extra kind of pushed out of public serious life and modernity. Um, so I think like th- that's part of why I think Roke is so valuable. I mean, anyone who can, can strike a note in favor of that kind of receptivity um, is, you know, I think a good corrective for us.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it it goes back to what you were saying earlier about it being almost Marian, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe with it like maybe it's Catholic baggage he has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? All right.
1: So there there's a section in in letter 8 that I want to I want to look at cuz it this to me was really interesting and exciting when I when I came across it. Um so first of all, he wants to say this is uh we're starting with the topic of solitude. He says um and let's see if i can give you any kind of citation i don't know like maybe that's the third paragraph in letter eight he says to speak of solitude again it becomes always clearer that this at bottom is not something that one can take or leave we are solitary we may delude ourselves and act as though this this were not so that is all but how much better it is to realize that we are so yes even to begin by assuming it And then he talks about how wonderfully and ultimately fruitfully disorienting this is. He says. uh, We shall indeed turn dizzy, then, for all points upon which our eye has been accustomed to rest are taken from us. There is nothing near anymore and everything far is infinitely far. Um, And he goes on, he develops this this, um, analogy of a man who's been kind of quickly snatched out of his room um, and taken up onto a mountain, um, and how his sort of head would be spinning and he he would lose his bearings entirely. Um, But he says, um, it is necessary for us to experience that too. We must assume our existence as broadly as we can. Everything, even the unheard of, must be possible in it. That is, at bottom, the only courage that is demanded of us, to have courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter. And he thinks we have a way of kind of crowding our lives um, in order to exclude these inexplicable things. Um, He thinks that sadness is an important one. He thinks that God might be one. He thinks spiritual life might be one. He thinks death is certainly one that we kind of buffer ourselves against these sort of shocks to our system that disorient us and throw us off but that there really isn't any way to grow uh, if we keep those things out that those moments of hospitality where we allow a deep deep sadness to actually come in and we kind of play host to it and we don't you know hide from it or kick it out as soon as possible those are the moments where we expand could be something, <laughs> something foreign come into us or something.
0: Yeah. So there's, I'm sorry because I don't have the um, citation because mm. I was like lazy and just cut and paste. Right. But there, <laughs> it must be towards the end because it's towards the end of my notes. Yeah. Um, but here's what he says about the connection between solitude and suffering um, Love your solitude and bear with sweet sounding lamentation the suffering it causes you. For those who are near, you are far, you say, and that shows it is beginning to grow wide about you. And when what is near you is far, then your distance is already among the stars and very large. Rejoice in your growth, in which you naturally can take no one with you, and be kind to those who remain behind. Be sure to calm before them, and do not torment them with your doubts, and do not frighten them with your confidence or joy, which they could not understand."
1: Yeah, so look, we've all been trapped, or not all of us, some of us have been experiencing deep, deep, you know, singular solitude. Some others of us, including both you and me, have been um, quarantining with a number of humans. Yeah. <laughs> forced into close proximity. And I don't know about your life, but um, there's been some friction <laughs> in the Corbin house.
0: I, I love my darling monsters. But yeah, I mean, they attack one another, and it's been yeah. madness and crazy. And sometimes yeah. I just send them off. I'm like, just go ride your bike. I don't want to see you.
1: Yeah, that's so old fashioned. That's wonderful. I can kind I of mean, do that in the neighborhood in Cambridge where I am. But but I imagine I picture you having like like swimming holes and stuff.
0: <laughs> Not quite. <laughs>
1: and, you have, but... and they go fishing just with like you know sticks and.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, not quite. Um, but they, but my children are allowed to roam Mm -hmm. freely. Um, and I specifically moved to a backwater where they could do that.
1: But like, I actually think that Rilka has helped me, maybe not as much as some in my home might wish he had, but I think he's helped me to live better with my, my humans, um, in the past few months. I think one thing that's really wonderful that you didn't read there, but uh, so, you know, kind of a famous um, quote from this book, is he says that, first of all, that we, um, you need solitude if you're in a family, you need solitude in your career, right? This is really doesn't have all that much to do with just physically isolating yourself. Um, and what he says is that the, the end goal, the end product of all this striving for solitude is that you become able to love a person um, while and and by protecting their solitude right so recognizing that they are different from you and they need to kind of run through the 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 patterns of growth and change that they're running through at their and they have to do it at their pace and they're not going to be exactly how you want them and they're certainly not going to be you right And, and i mean as silly as it is that to me that seems like a, a large difficult lesson that you need to learn in a, in a romantic relationship is that the other person is just not you um and you need to let them not be you um and so i i think that and, and what rilke says is that if you do that right and you achieve that that you'll become able he says it very beautifully to like stand next to each other gazing upon a beautiful sky or something like that all right so like a distinctively like non-consumptive relationship, right? You don't need to kind of transform this person into what you want them to be. They don't need to just feed you. You become able to like protect their solitude and let them be themselves, which is very beautiful. I, I again, I think it's something that, that I'm, I need to get better at, but. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I I really like that language of not consumptive. Yeah. I think. Obviously we live in a consumerist culture and that has deeply infected our relationships, you know, the way we love each other, the way we have sex. I mean, everything becomes a kind of consumption and it's very bad. It's very difficult to resist. And I absolutely agree that solitude can help. (laughs) I also want to read a poem from Rilke, which I think is so wonderful and expresses so much of this Well, actually, there's two poems because it kind of gets at my question. So my question is, what's the difference between solitude and loneliness?
2: Mm.
0: And so there are two. So Rilke has a poem called Loneliness, Ein Samkeit, and a poem called The Solitary Person, Der Ein Mm. So I'll start with The Solitary Person. Among so many people cozy in their homes, I am like a man who explores far off oceans Days with full stomachs stand on their tables. I see a distant land full of images. I sense another world close to me, perhaps no more lived than in the moon. They, however, never let a feeling alone. And all the words they use are so worn. The living things I brought back with me hardly peep out compared with all they own. In their native country, they were wild. Here they hold their breath from shame. So I think this language of like, you know, the solitary person is able to like go somewhere else, right? And as a result, you know, his words are are not so worn, but he's also like a different person from everyone else now.
2: Mm.
0: And the things that he brings back with him, they're somehow transformed or they have this transformative capacity. Mm. So that's the solitary person. Mm. And now look at his characterization of the lonely person. So this is a poem on loneliness, which is, I think this is actually one of the first poems of Rilke I ever read. And like, yeah, it it really had a deep effect on me. So this one is just loneliness. Being apart and lonely is like rain. It climbs toward evening from the ocean plains, from flat places, rolling and remote. It climbs to heaven, which is its old abode, and only when leaving heaven drops upon the city. It rains down on us in those twittering hours when the streets turn their face to the dawn and when two bodies who have found nothing disappointed and depressed roll over and when two people who despise each other have to sleep together in one bed. That is when loneliness receives the rivers.
2: mm Mm-mm.
0: I it just kills me every time, <laughs> but I mean, there seems to be a really big difference yeah. between solitude and loneliness.
1: And I mean, okay. So you could be alone in a room and reveling in your solitude and, and being fed by it, and drinking it in, or you could be in a room alone, just absolutely thrashing around because you can't bear to be alone. Right. I mean, you can also be in a bed with someone and be absolutely lonely or, or be enjoying solitude right Uh, so what's the what's the marker i mean i mean on one level it's just accepting it or or welcoming it right it's like hospitality to that that uh, the fact of your aloneness i mean is that the whole of it
0: i mean somehow i'm thinking that he sees loneliness as a kind of suffering
1: yeah Um, but a rich and enriching kind of suffering
0: so let me slightly change my question is the solitary person necessarily lonely
1: no no certainly not no, I don't well, think well, so well, well yes to begin with i think that um based on his advice to kappas all throughout these letters he assumes that for the beginner in solitude it's going to be hellish right and that you have to kind of make all these willful decisions to accept and not flee from your solitude and welcome your solitude, but that it's going to be like painful, like growing pains, he says. Um, So that there's something that on one level doesn't, doesn't naturally sit well with us.
0: You have to have the right habits for solitude. Yeah. I think... Um, Anybody who reads anything in the monastic tradition, Mm -hmm. like all of the rules for the monastics are about cultivating the right dispositions and habits specifically for prayer. You know, when certainly I know as a, as a convert, as someone who was raised like in a completely non-religious house where there was no prayer, when I started to pray, it was like super weird Mm. and awkward. And Mm. obviously I was terrible about it because you have to have habits, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any of them. In fact, mm-hmm. I had like the opposite dispositions. I was not at all disposed to prayer. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, it, it is about habits, but I also can't help but think of Aristotle's discussion of friendship. And mm-hmm. he says, you know, the wicked person um, is incapable of being alone with himself. Right. Yeah. Um, because, and why would that be? This is something that like, I always talk about my students with. Why would a wicked person not want to be by himself? Yeah. Right. And the answer is, well, he doesn't want to look at himself. Like when you're by yourself.
1: You're confronted. You're,
0: you're, you're good. Like it's a, it's a moment to reflect, <laughs> to look in. And for a lot of people, that's definitely really an unhappy, they don't want to do that.
1: Okay. But something that both Rilke and and you know I know we're going to get to Merton something that both of them they sorry that they both think you see when you get alone is you see your own death right and they emphasize that as being the thing that it's difficult to look at um, and of course that's coming for the virtuous man and the vicious man alike right so I wonder if Aristotle's right about that because you know presumably he's not been a vicious man he doesn't know what it's like <laughs> um I wonder if it's just that that vicious men are cowardly and they can't look at those at those things they can't be confronted with their own finitude and fragility and mortality
0: i mean honestly aristotle has so little to say about death it's really remarkable Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure that that's it for him i really think he just thinks like when you're a bad person you don't you don't want to be by yourself because you don't like yourself and you don't like yourself because you're not likable
1: yeah but are do good people really like themselves (laughs) Um, it may may just be that i don't have access to that data set
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh no comment i mean look i don't yeah um that's 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 just aristotle man um
1: yeah you know i I think you might be wrong
0: he might Uh, be he might be it's possible
1: just because i think that even for a very good person you know if i Right. I think even for a very good person, there's going to be difficult, real, real big stuff that needs to be dealt with when you drop all your defenses and kind of look flatly at yourself and and at life.
0: Yeah, you know, I think Aristotle, yeah, he's not St. Augustine. I guess I'll put it that way. But anyway, so you brought up Merton. Yeah. So let's, let's try. Yeah. Let's go there. So
1: it is called rain and the rhinoceros
0: rain and the rhinoceros. Right. It's pretty fantastic. It is nice. So why, why this Merton? What do you, what's the, what's Merton's message here? Oh, Without I mean, blood. I
1: haven't, I haven't read much Merton. So to be honest, there may be some much better Merton than this. Um, but if you do some searches for merton Sol- solitude this is what comes up um so he's talking about he takes a a trip which it, it seems he does often out to a cabin in the woods um and it's raining and he he's really concerned to highlight the difference between first that life out in the woods as it's raining and you're far away from people and the kind of like hyper competitive um Sort of mastery obsessed, um, quick moving life in the city. Um, But then he also wants to uh, draw a line between a kind of sociality um, that takes place in society, which he's not terribly impressed with, and a a better kind of sociality that would kind of flow out of solitude. Um, So for me, there are a couple of things that are really interesting about this. That's one is that. I don't think he says anything definitive but he at least opens the question of in what sense do we need each other right because reading through rilke like it's actually not really clear why you need anyone else
0: yeah like
1: you could stay in your solitude for a long long time and it would just get richer and richer and and wider and wider and like you would kind of explode into this (laughs) um you know like omni person um merton doesn't think that. And he at least opens the question of, uh, of these different kinds of erotic attractions that we have to society. That's one. And the other is that he believes in, in an immortal soul. Um, and so he says some very nasty platonic things about um, your vulnerable physical body being a shell and it's not real and you need to kind of break yourself of that illusion and, and see your immortal soul as being your real self. Um, so yeah, th- those are to me the two big kind of counterpoints or things that he adds to the the Rilkean vision.
0: Yeah, so I'm glad that you brought that up about Rilke because I think there's a real strand in Rilke that sort of looks like the solitary genius, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, looking looking out from on top of the mountain over the vista. Like, I d- I don't love that. You know, I'm not. I'm not into. <laughs> I'm, I'm. I'm not into these sort of romantic mm. um, conceptions because I think they tend to be self-deceived. I, I think it's a. I think it's a. You know, a, a false image of the human, because we are vulnerable, interdependent,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: political, social creatures. I think finding the right balance actually between solitude and individuality and community mm-hmm. and the common good. But I think that balance is very difficult. And of course, mm-hmm. historically, we've seen how it gets corrupted mm-hmm. <laughs> towards either extreme. Mm-hmm. And I think Merton is an interesting case because he's a monk, right? right. He's a Roman Catholic monk in a, in a very contemplative Order who, lives in a, who lives a monastic life, mm-hmm. but he doesn't live completely. Of course, he's in, a, he's in a community. He's in a monastic community. But he's also working within a metaphysical picture of the world and the human person in which the life of prayer does actually contribute mm-hmm. to the common good. And so there's that commitment. But what is the deeper connection for him? between between solitude and community and uh, solidarity as you put it, solidarity is is a social virtue
1: yeah i mean he spends most of his time decrying bad sorts of solidarity and i don't i'd want to try to dig through with you and see if we can suss out what good solidarity might look like for either of these guys actually um but so he basically thinks that we're all First of all, we don't know about our immortal soul, so we think that our bodies are, are our whole selves and we know those are fragile and fleeting and we're terrified of that. So we run, we run, run, run into community um, and we join this this sort of process of like self armament where we're all trying to stack up as much um, power and resource and um, kind of distraction as possible so that we don't have to face up to our our vulnerability um so that is that seems to be the dominant mode of uh kind of human sociality for merton i mean he's quite sure that that's very bad and that you can't be happy and you can't um know yourself and you can't really love other people unless you get yourself alone and get to know yourself um and there's a a passage towards the end where he says um, the solitary far from enclosing himself in himself becomes every man. He dwells in the solitude, the poverty, the indigence of every man. So. I suspect that if he were to draw it out explicitly, what he would say is you kind of you cause it yourself away to a certain degree, you kind of confront who and what you are, you become um, reconciled to that, you learn to love it. And, and then in that process, you will have become reconciled and you will have learned to love everyone's self. Um, and then you go back into community, I, I would say to serve, right? So it's almost like there isn't a need on your end that pulls you back into community. Right? It's just that virtue impels you or the, the commandments of Christ impel you to get back into society to help.
0: There's a sense in which all of this sounds remarkably right. like Aquinas, right? right? So in Aquinas, and this is pretty Aristotelian, but, you know, it's Aristotelian taken up into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the idea is that self-love is the foundation for love of anyone else, including Mm -hmm. love of God, you know, the whole Aristotelian model of friendship as, um, you know, the friend is a second self.
2: Right. right? right.
0: So there has to be enough in common between us. But for Aquinas as a, as a Christian, the commonality is our human nature Mm -hmm. that I see in you the same image of God that Mm -hmm. I see in myself,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: but he thinks, yeah, I can't properly love you unless I love myself. And I can't properly love myself without virtue.
1: But so what what role would Eros play either for Merton or Rilke? Like, it seems like that longing for companionship, um, it almost seems like a weakness that needs to be kind of slowly blotted out. Um, And then we can kind of go back with our hearts full, you know, like fully self-possessed, in Rilke's language, being like a world in myself. But he thinks that's when I should approach a lover is when I'm so fully sort of developed that I I am independent a world and I can offer that world to her. So I, I that there seems to be there's something I want to understand better about like my need in that case.
0: Well, I mean, eros though is broader than that, right? I mean, eros in the platonic sense is oh, just. Hunger. Yeah, this this kind of being drawn out of yourself towards something that's good, right? And of course,
1: mm, but it's an opportunity to extend yourself further for for Plato, right? It's to sort of fight against your mortality and take some part of yourself that's good and put it in someone else so that it can grow.
0: Well, it's giving birth to beauty. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, no, no it's, not, I mean...
1: it's giving birth to <laughs> beauty. Yeah, so that's important. So he we see it for Plato. We see a beautiful person and we're like, oh my god I'm pregnant. I'm full of these things that I want to put put out in the world and have lived forever Um, And so that person kind of awakens you gives you hope and, and fills you with desire So you run and you implant again, like all the very masculine pictures you implant that good thing of yourself out there in this person or in a book or whatever and then it lives long past you is I mean is that is that right? Is that what Phryrilla or or Merton justifies our move past solitude into sociality again? Or
0: I think I might put the Platonic view slightly differently than you just did, anyway. Okay. because okay. um, I I think the Platonic conception of desire and the sense of eros, you know, has to do with a sense of lacking something it's mm-hmm. like a kind of neediness so yeah. there's the 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 beloved the mm-hmm. object of your love
2: yeah
0: you're so desperate like you like when you feel this love what you're really feeling is an absence in in yeah. yourself and right. so you want to be united right, right? With your beloved, yep. you you want your beloved to be present to you, and so it it is this kind of longing. It's this kind of aching, and you feel like yeah. you feel like, oh, I'm not going to be complete. Like it's this Absolutely. it's the striving. This Absolutely. kind of like mad striving to be finally complete.
1: Right, so Plato now, doesn't end up there. So right. So so that's the Aristophanes in the Symposium. But like with the Automa we leave that behind, right? And we want we're striving for immortality as best we can. Now I think there. You, we can talk about who's actually correctest in all this stuff, right? Like, maybe Plato's wrong, and maybe that sort of hunger for companionship and holding just is on its own legs, right? And it's not just a stand-in for my longing for immortality. Um, And I... Go ahead, sorry.
0: Well, so again, so as I understand the ladder of love, like, what you're doing when you go up it, Mm -hmm. right, is that... Yeah, you're going to something increasingly more good, right? And for Plato, more good is bound up with all sorts of metaphysical commitments. But at any rate, you know, we start out with these merely sensual loves and then we get to the forms. I'm not sure how, how strong that sort of thing is in Rilke because Rilke seems to start not from this position of wanting to go out of himself at all but like wanting to go further inside of himself.
1: Well, because he's, he's weirdly mature, but when he talks about young lovers, like they're desperate, right? They're Aristophanes. They feel incomplete. They want to lose themselves in this love and this, this erotic entanglement. But I think he thinks it's immature.
2: Well, it
0: is immature. (laughs) I mean, it's immature because the idea that like some other human being is totally going to complete you is bonkers um but
1: so then, so then why do we need each other and i i mean i i genuinely want to know <laughs> like like why do what in what in what sense do we actually do is there any sense in which i need someone else um maybe you know i would say i need them to as a sort of um a vehicle to complete my virtue in right like there are certain virtues that only get exercised if i have people around me um
0: we have to always bear in mind the context mm-hmm. and for rilka he's like kind of giving advice to a young poet right yep. about being an artist a creator hopefully one day writing decent poetry and so the po- like the poet like like a poem is something for others <laughs> right
1: but it's not because he says you don't if you write from the bottoms of your bottom of your being it won't even occur to you to send it to a magazine
0: (laughs) well so there are two ways of understanding that okay right um but look language itself
2: yeah sure it's
0: public is a a public thing right? right even if i write a bunch of poetry and i like hide it under my bed Mm-hmm. At some point, somebody's probably going to read that stuff, right? Rilke
1: yeah, so um, so, writes all these letters where he's giving advice and helping people, right? Like, and and my my sense is that he gets everything he needs; he gets all the fulfillment he needs by himself, and he comes out of his closet only to to sort of for philanthropic reasons, <laughs> right? Only to help.
0: I don't know that that's fair to Rilka, but but okay,
1: okay, no, Um,
0: I mean, not. my sense of Rilke is, and this comes out. In the poem that I read, The Solitary Person, like you go to this other place and what you bring back um, has the potential to change the place that you inevitably come back to, right? Which is to say the world. I believe, and I see no evidence to think that Rilke does not believe, that poetry is absolutely transformative for the world. And but that doesn't mean that we reduce the value of poetry to some sort of utility calculus or function. Like, so we're not going to be, we're not going to be like Hume, right? Where, so like Hume, right? Who was, who, who very famously wrote this takedown of the monkish virtues, including solitude and silence and humility. Those are all bad for Hume. Why are they bad? Because the only measure of anything good for Hume is, is, utile or dolce right it's either useful or it's pleasant right. and that's it that's the and he and he thinks scientifically speaking where he just means crass materialism and empiricism by science that's the only measure there could be nothing else and of course Poetry really loses. It. I mean, your poetry has to like be pleasant.
1: He's a coward as well. Or... Like there's that. There's that to say about Hume. Is that he finds that everything kind of breaks down for him. Um, McIntyre had this essay, and I want to say that the title of the essay was Hume's Cry of Pain. I could be wrong about that, where he pulls some some of Hume's writings out, where, where Hume has sort of convinced himself into this very skeptical position where he doesn't know anything, right? He's, nothing is certain for him anymore, nothing's solid. And he, like, has this sort of temporary crisis, and he has to go play backgammon with his buddies to, like, calm himself down. Yeah. And it sounds a lot like the nasty things that Rilke and Merton say we do. You're too weak to confront your own finitude, so you have to run and play backgammon. Right, mm-hmm. So, like, I, I think solitude is sweet, and I think that if, if Hume weren't a coward, then um, he could spend a little more time with it. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a coward as well, but um, I think Rilke's not, and I think that for Rilke, solitude is sweet, and I think for Hume, it would have been sweet if he didn't, wasn't, you know, a coward.
0: Right, but remember that for someone like Aristotle or Aquinas, what is intrinsically valuable is also necessarily useful and pleasant but what's most important is that it's intrinsically valuable. That is to say that it constitutes flourishing for a human being. Yep. Yep. And that's what drops oh. out on Hume's picture. Okay. All there is, is use value and pleasure. And okay. when pleasure isn't grounded in this deeper value, then it becomes an end in itself. Then it becomes shallow. Mm-hmm. I agree. Right. Yeah. I think for someone like Rilke, it's hard to say because again, he's, not a philosopher he's not writing philosophical essays where he is putting his cards on the table but it seems to me that he is thinking this way right
2: um
0: whether 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 it's explicit or not you know he seems implicitly committed to something like this precisely because he thinks that there is this transformative power To poetry right Mm -hmm. like you know i go on my journey to this other world but i do bring words back yeah that are no longer worn out
2: yeah right right.
0: like i can make these worn out words have meaning again through my poetry
2: yeah
1: so he's, he's like purifying the language of the tribe or like he's renewing the language of the tribe um what 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 sort of falls out from that
0: i think other people have maybe express this sort of thing more clearly. But I'm just thinking of like Walker Percy, for example. So Walker Percy writes a lot about how our language, especially our religious language has become so cheap. Like if you're an artist and you want to write about sin, you can't just start talking about sin because it's a meaningless word, Mm -hmm. right? Now every single thing that Walker Percy ever wrote was about sin. <laughs> but he has to he has to recover that mm-hmm. for us because he's like it's been so cheapened yeah. by this kind of commercialized crass post-Christian Christianity. Like mm-hmm. people don't really know what this word means anymore. It's become shopworn. Yeah. And I think so I think that one of the central tasks of the writer, mm-hmm. you know, is to in some sense recover recover what's been kind of like encrusted over it's a search for meanings that have been lost Mm -hmm. when our language gets really cheapened right and it it does it happens so quickly i see rilke as thinking of poetry as obviously extremely important he devoted his entire life to it yeah. um, and i don't think in like some weird mas- mas- masturbatory way like it's not just about him and his pleasure and he just likes poetry
2: no, no, i think sure.
0: it's i think it is for the world and i think it's remarkably similar to the way that a monk might think of his prayer I mean, as for the world it's a sense that hume can have no account of Right. And that's why he's like, yeah, burn it all down. It's stupid. Like, we're beyond that. But I, I think, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think the fate of the monastic and the fate of the poet are probably pretty deeply tied, actually.
1: Okay. So so Rilke, I mean, he says at one point that, like, the life of an artist is sort of just another form of life. And, you know, because capus it becomes clear pretty early on in the letters that capus is not a poet. In any serious way, um, and is not going to be a poet. And Rilke is trying to encourage him uh, to live well in his vocation as a soldier. Um, and so he thinks you can live all of these realities without writing anything down. Um, so, I mean, he adds what what Rilke adds to the, you know, over and above the life of Capus is that he writes down what he sees. He, he for whatever reason, has the charism or the, uh, in Catholic language, or he has the knack for. Um, language languageifying this stuff that that any person can see and that every person is sort of called to see in some way i mean do you think it's something over and above that there's some kind of heroic thing going on
0: um i think i think in rilke yeah there's a bit of this kind of romantic heroic impulse i don't think it's terrible but i think that ultimately What Rilke is after is a kind of knowledge, a kind of understanding, a kind of clarity that he thinks is transformative. So this is actually from, I don't, again, I don't know which letter because my notes are a mess, but this is what he writes for the young poet. Like this Mm -hmm. is his advice. You have to let each impression and each germ of a feeling come to completion wholly in itself, Mm -hmm. in the dark, in the inexpressible, the unconscious, beyond the reach of one's own intelligence and await. With deep humility and patience, the birth hour of a new clarity, that alone is living the artist's life yeah. in understanding, yeah. as in creating, yeah. right? Yeah. Understanding
1: it's like similar is, a, is, a,
0: is, a, is a public thing, right? I mean, knowledge is public. It's, it's essentially, in its nature, something to be shared. The whole act of writing a poem out
2: yeah.
0: is a testament to that.
2: Yeah.
0: Even when poetry was purely oral, poetry was always, I mean, from its beginning, it was festival, right? It was for the community. And I see no reason to think that Rilke doesn't place himself in that tradition. I'm less certain about Merton, but there, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put him within the monastic tradition that he's
2: living.
1: That That it's just sort of intrinsically outward facing right, like that this this downward digging that you he suggests you do it always it always already has a kind of public vocation kind of baked into it or a public application or or something
0: well, for the monk right, um prayer right is to carry out the essential work of the church, and the church is the mystical body of christ mm-hmm. it's all i mean, so yes, it's incredibly <laughs> it's yeah. it's not solitary in the sense of, I alone am doing this thing for myself, which I think is probably the wrong conception of solitude anyway. Because even when you go into solitude, if you're doing it correctly, that is to say, if you're coming to a better understanding of the kind of thing that you are, Mm -hmm. then you're coming to see the sense in which you are interconnected to things outside of yourself in case you were
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: alienated from that fact or it had been obfuscated for some reason.
1: So, especially in regards to Christianity, I have a question about Rilke that was was sort of on my mind as I was reading this, which is, is, is the world fallen for Rilke? Um, because he says a lot of things where, where it seems like the world is perfect. He says, you should trust the world, you should trust life, you should trust nature. And you know it's clear enough why you might say something like that if you believed that it was made by an omnibenevolent, omnipowerful creator as a you know gift of love, but there seems to me something, first of all, very brave, to toss yourself into that direct, to just throw yourself in the river of like reality and life unprotected the way that Rilke suggests. Um, but also, it's just interesting because maybe he's correct. And maybe, you know, it's in, in Rilke, it seems like the only problem is us, right? Like, pain is going to come, but that's not a problem. Like, it's only a problem because we're not bearing it right. Right? And sorrow and loss, all these things are, death is going to come, but these are our very own things. And, like, we just need to learn to recognize them as our very own things. So, like, to me, this is potentially, like, the best version of atheism I could imagine, right? And again, it always kind of flirts with something mystical but I don't even necessarily what I'm wondering is does it need to flirt with something mystical or is this just like a totally redemptive deep experience of reality that Rilke has achieved here just by dint of of real courage and patience he just stays with nature long enough until you can see that actually it just is good as it is
0: yeah that's such a great question I mean I don't have some Pat, obvious answer to that. Yeah. Um, Rilke strikes me as someone very close to someone that I have thought a lot about, which is Iris Murdoch. Yeah. Who's also an atheist, but a really strange one. You know, she's she's an atheist who's totally obsessed with mystery okay. and with affirming the world and seeing the world as it is yeah. and like the form of the good. You know. She's a very religious atheist, and Rilke sort of, in a casual way. I'm not a Rilke scholar, but yeah. he strikes me in a in a very similar vein. And when I first came to Rilke, I was an atheist, and I thought he sounded like a religious nut. <laughs> but I was like really attracted to it. Yeah. And of course, I was a very not Murdochian atheist. I was a very kind of crude. I don't know, like Richard Dawkins, but I had never heard of him, but I was a kind of prototype of the sort of new atheist um, yeah, because I was a teenager. But Rilke had a had a real impact on me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I thought there was definitely definitely something there.
1: But be a Christian, Jen, push back. And show me how he's wrong. Show me how that there is a fall and there's a brokenness at the heart of all this now. How it's it's wrong <laughs> that we die. It's it's a <laughs> mistake.
0: Well, I'm not here for catechesis, well,
2: but... I
1: mean, okay, I guess.
0: <laughs> but I mean, I'm not an atheist, right? So right. but I but I think that...
1: but he affirms um, he just affirms so completely. And I feel like a, a Christian with a doctrine of the fall um wants to qualify that affirmation no
0: no i think a christian should affirm the world the world is good just like i think we should affirm ourselves like we're fallen we should still affirm ourselves the world is in a sense fallen in the sense that yeah it's not eden anymore right but i don't think that rilke thinks the world is eden he wants to affirm the world. And that is something of a quasi religious posture, because if you really press on that, you're going, I mean, like, if you really press on the question, why affirm the world? Mm-hmm. Right. Why not, why not rebel against it? Like Camus, but Camus himself is very cross pressured. Right. I mean, Camus, like there's like a big gap between Camus and his kind of like philosophical essays and Camus and his In his novels and his art. He's much more world-affirming in his art. Mm. I think there's something about the posture of being an artist for Rilke that involves a kind of affirmation of the world that he thinks is important. I mean, he just helps himself to the language of mystery and the language of God. He's profitable, he
1: does whatever he wants. He uses that without apology.
0: He absolutely seems to think that the human is something that reaches for the transcendent, Mm -hmm. that the poet for sure is Mm -hmm. reaching for this. It's it's hard to say because he's not a theologian. He's not a philosopher. I'm not sure that he ever really comes out as any kind of atheist either. You know, I mean, it may be that his views are, are... a mess somewhere in between there.
1: I'm giving him maybe more credit than I should, that, you know, assuming sort of internal consistency and that he's telling us the truth, but it just seems like death has no sting for Rilke. and it, it seems like he's he's achieved something really quite monumental, which is he, he has come to affirm the world, <laughs> as it is without repair. Am I-
0: No, or? I'm not sure that death has no sting. I mean, read some of his poetry. I no
1: mean, like, but, but if, we, if we spend our time with it, we can become friends with it, and it's not so, we can come to love it, even.
0: He's not any kind of orthodox yeah. Christian. And, but I don't think that he has to be in order for his poetry to, to be good. That is to say, to be beautiful and pointing us in the direction of truth. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a huge Rilke fan.
1: No, I mean, okay, so, like, I, I apologize. I know I keep pushing on this, but, like, when I look at him standing next to Merton, there's something more attractive to me about Rilke than Merton. Even though Merton has some it's a brilliant essay, and he has some really wonderful social analysis that Rilke doesn't have. But Merton can only make his peace with with our vulnerable physical reality because he has recourse to the idea of an immortal soul that is realer than this shit that's going to sort of decay and fall away and like mm-hmm. there's something that seems to me so admirable and brave about rilke and maybe like i'm i'm thinking in real time here like maybe like the best thing like maybe that's the best posture towards reality that i that i've ever seen Right. He seems able to affirm our reality kind of whole cloth, um, including the pain and the suffering and the loneliness and the death. He seems able to dwell with it in a way that I I I haven't seen necessarily elsewhere. And I mean, it's just a wholly different ball game if you have the idea of like a benevolent creator kind of hovering beneath and within and throughout all this stuff. Who will make all things well? You know, everything will be well, and all and all manner of things will be well. That if Rilke is doing what he kind of suggests he's doing, that to me is like one of the great um, sort of emotional, artistic, philosophical accomplishments that I can that I can think of.
0: I see the passage that you're highlighting about about the body and matter, and I understand yeah. why that's rubbing you the wrong way, and Merton, yeah. but of course, Merton, as a Christian, is going to believe that his body will be resurrected we have to read that merton passage still knowing this in the back of our mind that he's he's not a platonist right? so he he believes that his body right will be glorified and um, i mean it's not now right but but that's what he hopes for as a christian and and that's not something that rilke is hoping for merton's denigration of the body and rilke's affirmation of the body have to be understood and in, in those wider
2: yeah i mean
1: rilke had all the resources yeah right like you don't have any recourse so like you better like buckle down and like <laughs> see what you can make here
0: um, i mean it's interesting too that rilke would affirm the body given that he was kind of a sickly guy.
1: I assume you're a, oh yeah, you are a Dostoevsky fan. Um, I am, yeah. and you know, there's that section where Zosim is talking about, sorry, we're ranging quite broadly now, but in the Brothers K where Zosim is talking about his, his older brother and how he was this terrible, cocky, um, atheist until he got very, very sick. And then that yeah. kind of broke him and he became like, um, sort of ecstatically enamored with all of reality. Right, and he says, actually, but that, but that's so close to Rilke. He says we are living in paradise, only we can't see it. Yeah, it's close. It's close to what Rilke's up to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in so far as like the Russians probably Tolstoy is is a, is a heavier influence for Rilke, and and you can see um, a lot of Tolstoy's, you know, romantic conception of of nature Mm -hmm. and his romanticization of peasant life, Mm -hmm. right? Um, like why is the peasant so noble? It's because he's so, he's, it's precisely because he's not alienated, Mm -hmm. right? From nature and from his body. I mean, this is such a theme and especially in Tolstoy's, um, novellas or or short stories, and, I think there's a lot of that in Rilke. I mean, I personally would want a more de-romanticized embrace of nature and and the material. For me, obviously, I'm going to want some kind of sacramental (laughs) vision, right? Where Mm -hmm. the spiritual and the material are just united. I don't see that in Rilke. I do see that more in Merton
1: no there's no so it's not it's not a sacrament it's not a point or it's not a symbol certainly it's not pointing beyond itself it's something more like a like a thoroughgoing pantheism maybe for Roka. but there does seem to be this kind of like spiritual current that unites everything because he does i mean yeah, because he does say stuff like "just trust life," just give yourself to life.
2: Right. right. <laughs> Which,
1: like Nietzsche's, like, well, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it seems like that advice. I'm, I'm with Nietzsche there. <laughs> so, people who are thinking about solitude, yeah. Obviously, you are. You're writing a book about it. Are there other um, people that you've been reading or that you sort of recommend for a reflection on that topic?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's a wonderful text um, that kind of kicked me off on this this um line of reflection it's a preface by joseph conrad um that is from his novel which i cannot say which is the n-word of the narcissus uh-huh and it's a preface yeah, to our yeah. novel it's easily easily googleable online um that has some really wonderful reflections on this um mm-mm. That's what comes to mind at the moment. Oh, and incidentally, I'm gonna be discussing that text with Phil and Jake on um, a different podcast soon.
0: Oh, Manifesto. Yeah, we're we're yes, we're we're friends with the Manifesto podcast. I saw that. We're, we're yeah. big fans. Big no, fans.
1: These are great podcasts.
0: Well, great. Yeah, no, I'll definitely listen. Ian, thank you so much for being with us.
1: <laughs> you're you're welcome. Really thank appreciate you it so much. This is a lot of fun.
0: You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or Lyceum, and you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then please be sure to let your friends know to check us out and leave us a positive review on iTunes. On our next episode, I'll be joined by philosopher James K. Smith from Calvin College, and we'll be chatting about Christopher Beja's latest novel, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. Until then, be well and keep reading.